Next, this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. Throughout the month of February, ReachMD talks with experts about new medications, technologies, and treatment guidelines in cardiac care. You're just about to discharge a patient, and your nurse yells out, Doctor, the blood pressure's elevated. When do you treat non-diagnosed hypertension? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael J. Bressler. Dr. Bressler is a clinical professor in the Division of Emergency Medicine at Stanford University and director of the Department of Emergency Medicine of the Mills Peninsula Health Systems. Dr. Bressler has been active in both state and federal healthcare legislation, including raising money for indigent patients by getting a surcharge on vehicular fines. But today we're discussing what do you do with an elevated blood pressure and when do you do it? Welcome, Dr. Bressler, to ReachMD. Whoa, glad to be here. So tell us, how widespread is hypertension in America, and how much are we seeing that's asymptomatic and presenting to an ED or an office? Well, unfortunately, it's almost endemic in our population. There's some studies that show as many as 27% of adult Americans are hypertensive. And, you know, now we have the concept of prehypertension, which is a systolic pressure basically between 130 and 140, or diastolic in the 90s. And if we include that, probably 60% of adults would fall into either the prehypertensive or the hypertensive category. So it's a major problem in our country. Yeah, I looked at those numbers that you gave me, and I was amazed because that is also a very gray zone. A physician looks at that, and even primary care, you don't always know what to do. So if you're in an emergency department or if it is in your office, what are some signs that you need to intervene? Well, anybody that comes in that you know, has 200 over 110, nobody's going to miss that. But the problem is, when we see folks, you know, that are 140 over 90, that kind of gray area that traditionally we've said, well, you know, don't eat the anchovy pizzas, you know, go easy on the potato chips. But the problem is that there's a significant risk of later cardiovascular problems in people in that gray zone. So patients, and that's what we always say, start with diet and exercise, but when it's a random reading and your doctor tells you that and you're about to leave anyhow, you don't usually take that to heart because you haven't had a life-threatening event and no one's told you this before and you kind of tend to blow it off. So the physician may not be that aggressive in following it. Is that wrong? Should we be more aggressive in a primary care or an emergency room setting? Well, of course, I'm an emergency physician, and one of the things that I'm glad about, in a sense, from a selfish point of view, is that I don't have to have the frustration that primary care docs have in telling Mrs. Jones, listen, you've got to lose weight, you've got to exercise. And she says, I know it, doc, but, you know, I'm taking the kids to school, and I'm busy, and I'm doing my job. And we all know how hard it is to diet, how hard it is to resist those snacks. And unfortunately, in our society, you know, we're all rushed and the fast food nation, you know, that we live in. There are too many temptations for us to not watch our salt. And exercise is not always fun as you get older. Sometimes it's pretty boring. And so while, yes, technically, from a medical point of view, we as physicians will tell folks, you've got to lose weight, you know, don't eat too much salt, exercise, we all know the fact is most people don't do that, including us physicians. Yeah, and it's not just the anchovies, it's your whole diet. Well, it's everything, yeah. Processed food, I mean, if you look at the label, it's amazing what kind of stuff is in there. What about the myth that blood pressure will get elevated or get higher as we get older? It's exactly that, a myth. In Aboriginal societies or societies where people still hunt, where they get plenty of exercise and where they don't have the kind of diet we have, 80-year-old folks often have pressure 120 over 80. Blood pressure is not supposed to rise in the human animal. That's an artifact of our civilization. 
Now, I also know you've done a lot of lectures, not just nationally, but internationally. Is what we're seeing in the United States different than, say, what they're saying in UK or France or Italy? Well, unfortunately, the Western world has, we have sort of, for better or worse, spread our influence throughout the Western world and now much of the rest of the globe as well. And, you know, we see that in folks that live in other countries, let's say, with traditional fish-based diet who then move to the United States and start eating more red meat and more salt, et cetera. And we see that over time, they start to catch up with those of us that were born here. What is the risk of ethnicity and, and hypertension in 2009? Who is more at risk or is anybody less at risk? Well, we're all at risk, but unfortunately, African-Americans seem to be more at risk. They have one and a half to two times the risk of, of hypertension versus Caucasian and Hispanic, non-African Hispanic Americans. Basically, again, you know, you, you see different numbers when you look at different studies, but some studies have shown that one in three African Americans are hypertensive versus one in four, one in five of Caucasians or Hispanics. And not only that, unfortunately, among African Americans, hypertension often begins earlier. There's more likelihood of end organ damage, and some of our major drugs, the ACE inhibitors and the angiotensin receptor blockers, are less effective in black folks. So we really should be aware of these ethnic differences. And then, of course, if they happen to be economically deprived, they are often medically underserved as well and and don't get their high blood pressure diagnosed or treated. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Bressler from Stanford University, and we're discussing what you do with an elevated blood pressure and when you do it. So can you remind us what we may have forgotten a little bit about the physiology of hypertension? And it's easy to forget. If we recall from med school, there's a formula. You know, you give one formula, blood pressure equals stroke volume times heart rate times peripheral vascular resistance. And so the only way that blood pressure can rise, either acutely or chronically, and the only way we as physicians can lower it is by altering either stroke volume or heart rate or, most importantly for our purposes, peripheral vascular resistance. So what happens is, you know, the risk factors that we all know about, I won't go over them, we all know what the risk factors are for cardiovascular disease and hypertension, but that leads to atheroma and the increasing stiffness of the arterial wall, and that directly, mathematically, will raise blood pressure. There are also some other factors that are involved. There are vasodilation factors, and that's primarily the beta-2 adrenergic system and nitric oxide, which increases intracellular cyclic AMP. That's all I'm going to say about that. We're clinicians. You know, we don't need to know the, you know, the details of physiology. But counteracting that, of course, there are the vasoconstriction forces, alpha-1 adrenergic innervation, and the circulating catecholamines. And now, for our purposes, very importantly, something called angiotensin II. And many of our drugs interfere with angiotensin II production or its action. That is the ACE inhibitors, for example. So if you take the the more borderline cases, which are often the hardest decisions, as you said before, and you're seeing him in the office for something else, what type of guidelines do you have or ASAP have, American College of Emergency Room Physicians, if you start seeing several readings, 140 over 90 or slightly higher, what, what should you do? Well, the American College of Emergency Physicians has a number of guidelines, and they basically recommend that in the emergency department that if a patient has persistently systolic pressures over 140 or diastolic over 90, they should be referred for follow-up. We wouldn't necessarily start somebody at that level on medication from the ED, but they should see their primary care physician for follow-up. Now, a lot of times folks will come into us with elevated blood pressure, you know, the white coat syndrome, 
I don't know why, but sometimes people don't like seeing doctors. You know? we <laughs> Something about pain, them. yes. Yeah, you know, we're good folks, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not pleasant to visit the doctor. And so we always like to have that blood pressure repeated at least once more before they're ready to go because often that pressure will come down. The initial pressure is very often high in the emergency department, but still there, there are some studies that show that even with that, in the emergency department population, a fairly sizable percentage of people do have elevated blood pressure. There's, there's one study in academic emergency medicine from 2007, over almost 1,000 patients, and 45% were over 140, over 90, and a third of those had no prior history of hypertension. Now, in my experience, I did, the numbers aren't quite that high, but still, there's a significant incidence of elevated blood pressure in the emergency department. Some of that is white coat syndrome. Some of it is obviously, by definition, people are having an acute medical problem and are uncomfortable, but at a minimum, if we see pressures like that that do not come down by discharge, then those patients ideally should be referred to their doctors uh, for further evaluation. So suppose, hypothetically, you've seen someone in your office or the emergency room, and maybe they're 140 over 90, maybe they're 150 over 100, and maybe they have, it's repeated, it's the same, and maybe they've got some risk factors. You don't feel an urge to treat them in your office or your emergency department, but you want to start them on something. Now, there's a lot of new medications out there. Even ACE inhibitors have evolved. What would you like us to know to initiate a safe treatment in these folks? Well, the recommendations generally are that for outpatient therapy, that essentially everybody who is being treated with medication should be on a diuretic. The expert panels have, have recommended that. I think some good references are the, the Joint National Committee on Prevention, Detection, Evaluation, and Treatment of High Blood Pressure from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Periodically, they publish guidelines or suggestions, and many of these are based on, obviously, they're all based on literature, but many of them are based on the OLHAC group, which is the Antihypertensive and lipid-lowering treatment to prevent heart attack trial group. But the recommendations of these experts' panels are that basically, unless there's a reason not to, almost everyone should be on a low-dose diuretic. Now, I was trained initially something like 50 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide, but we don't do that anymore. We start with a low-dose. Now, most patients will need another agent, an ACE inhibitor, an angiotensin receptor blocker, a beta blocker, calcium blocker, etc. But the recommendations really are that we start somebody on a low-dose diuretic, and often they will need another drug added. If they are on another drug and their pressure isn't being controlled, then they certainly should be started on a low-dose diuretic, something like hydrochlorothiazide, low-dose 12.5 milligrams, something like that. Now, what about in the last five years or 10 years or so, it's come up ACE inhibitors versus angiotensin receptor blockers. What's the difference? When would, if you can afford them, first of all, you have insurance would be one. And then second, when would you start one or when would you go to the other? Well, that's a very good question because these are extremely common drugs. Just to review a little bit of physiology, we have circulating angiotensinogen, gen meaning the genesis of then angiotensinogen is converted to angiotensin 1 with the help of renin from the kidneys. Angiotensin 1 is then converted to angiotensin 2, and that's catalyzed by angiotensin-converting enzyme, very aptly named. Now, why is angiotensin 2 important? Well, it's a very powerful vasoconstrictor. It promotes the release of aldosterone, which then helps us hold on to sodium and water, which raises pressure. Angiotensin II uh, stimulates the inflammatory response in the smooth muscles of the blood vessels and hypertrophy of the smooth muscles, and it decreases nitric oxide, which, remember, is the sort of intracellular, by way of cyclic AMP, uh, vasodilator. So angiotensin II is a very strong stimulus of hypertension. And so we have several ways of interfering with this. The ACE inhibitors, that is the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, 
inhibit the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. So the ACE inhibitors are superb drugs for decreasing production of angiotensin 2. The problem with them besides cost is a certain proportion of patients develop intractable coughing with them. And a small proportion, but a significant one, can have angioedema as well, which could be life-threatening. So we have another class of drugs which acts in the same pathway, but these are the angiotensin receptor blockers, ARB, the ARBs. They act to not prevent the production of angiotensin II like the ACE inhibitors, but to block its effect. And they have much less, if any, tendency toward the coughing or the uh, potentially very dangerous angioedema. And so the ACE inhibitors, if patients tolerate them, are great drugs. If they don't, the ARBs are excellent drugs, just as good. Can I guess that the ARBs are more expensive? Oh, yeah, very good guess. <laughs> Eventually, they'll all be generic, but, you know, right now, these are expensive drugs. But for the first-line drug you mentioned before, starting a diuretic, and most diuretics are available in generics, they're cheap, and most patients can probably safely start on them, yes? Absolutely correct. And remember also that the ACE inhibitors and ARBs are less effective in African-Americans. Wonder if that's actually utilized as much as it should be, because I know a lot of African Americans I've seen as patients that are on ACE inhibitors anyhow. Well, if they work, they work. But if they don't, then the physician should be aware that in anybody that another drug like a beta blocker or a long-acting calcium blocker might be effective. If you look into your crystal ball, do you predict that the medical community will be successful at the early diagnosis and treatment of hypertension and the complications in the future? Is prevention working? Will we see these numbers go down as we're watching the jobless rate go up? But will this something we'll be successful for? Well, I, I tend to be a cynical optimist about both things. <laughs> yes, I, I think. We've seen an improvement in many epidemiologic factors, smoking, etc. And I'm optimistic that over time, we will be able to get folks to behave a little bit better, including ourselves, and that we will be more attuned to picking up blood pressure at an earlier stage, elevated blood pressure at an earlier stage, and be able to intervene. Yes, I'm optimistic. It requires education both for us and our patients, but things will get better. Even with obesity and anchovies? Well, <laughs> I think so. I, it seems that people are paying more attention. If you look at the incidence of acute cardiovascular disease, it has been going down, and people are taking somewhat better care of themselves. But there's a long way to go. Thank you for being our guest today. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Our thanks goes to Dr. Michael Bressler, who's been our guest from Stanford. We've been discussing the management of the unexpectedly elevated blood pressure. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts at your fingertips. Thank you, as always, for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com.